you want to open up to Joshua 24. You can also, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, every week, uh, anytime you want, there's a couple rows worth of Bibles back there, uh, right by the doors where you come into the sanctuary. You can feel free to use those during a service. You can use one and then take it with you. Uh, We encourage you to be able to follow along with us uh, on Sundays. So as you get open and situated to Joshua 24, uh, I want to give just a quick update. Over the last couple weeks, we've been talking about an opportunity to uh, be a part of building some Easter baskets that we were using uh, to do some outreach with refugee families in the northeast part of Kansas City. We had 50 individuals or groups sign up to make those baskets and 20 Uh, individuals who said they would be willing to go and help us deliver those. And so on Tuesday night, we're taking those uh, Easter baskets down and in partnership with a ministry in northeastern Kansas City and some translators, we're going to be going to deliver those. Uh, A a wonderful opportunity for us to begin to build some relationships with individuals who uh, are not from here and who find themselves here in Kansas City and are trying to get acclimated and adjusted. One of the things that's so wonderful about LCF is that as a church, uh, we have a heart for the unreached. We have a heart for the nations and a desire to share the gospel with them. And we send people and resources to the nations in order to be engaged in uh, evangelistic missionary opportunities. And yet we have this growing group of people at our church who want to be involved in reaching the nations that the Lord has brought to us. And those baskets are a great way to do that. Our prayer is that they're a doorway into a relationship with a family and that for the individuals who are going and taking part in giving those baskets to those families, we're praying that that starts a relationship whereby there's able to be some long-term interaction where we have the opportunity to continue to share the gospel with them. So Tuesday night, those baskets are being delivered. If you think about it or you want to jot yourself down a little note, ask that you would pray for those. I think 4.30 is when they start taking those to deliver them. Um, We're going to be in Joshua chapter 24 this morning. Like I said, it'll finish the book of Joshua. It's the end of his time as the leader of the Israelite people. It's also the end of his life. Uh, at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua passes away. Um, and what happens in chapter 23 and 24 of Joshua is that he gives two speeches, one to the leaders, the elders of the Israelite people, and one to the entire gathered uh, group of Israelite people, the entire assembly of Israel, as it's often called in the Old Testament. And he's giving them this charge. Uh, he's encouraging them to spend their lives on the same side as the Lord, if you will. Uh, During the Civil War, right at the beginning of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln had a conversation with a close friend of his, and they were discussing both the, uh, the war that America had been plunged into within itself, and also the underlying, one of the underlying causes of that, which was slavery. And Abraham Lincoln's friend asked him, do you think God is on our side in this. And Abraham Lincoln's response was, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. This week's reading, uh, this section of Scripture, particularly Joshua 23 and 24, 
Joshua pleads with the Israelite people to remember that God is and has always been on Israel's side and that the challenge, the task that they should take seriously is remaining on his. That there's no need for them to try to persuade the Lord to be on their side. The challenge is for them to live lives that are on the side of the Lord. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning throughout the book of Joshua as we've been reading over the last couple of weeks and as we'll see really clearly this week. There's this constant refrain that pops up over and over again in the book of Joshua and it's that the Lord has given or the Lord gave or he is giving the promised land to the Israelites. It jumps off the page over and over again. Right at the very beginning of the book, the Lord tells Joshua, before they go into the promised land that they were about to conquer, he says, you're going into the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. That's Joshua 1, verse 10. Before the Israelites begin any of their marching around the city of Jericho, God tells Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. That's Joshua 6, 2. In chapter 8, verse 1, after dealing with the sin of Achan, God tells Joshua, See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. While they're fighting the Amorites in Joshua chapter 10, God encourages the Israelites by saying, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hand. While the Israelites conquer the southern portion of the promised land in the second half of Joshua chapter 10, we're told three times that the Lord gave the land and its kings over to the Israelites. In chapter 11, they conquer the northern portion of the promised land. And two times we're told that the Lord gave them the land and the kings that inhabited it. The book of Joshua, start to finish, is a crystal clear picture of the Lord's faithfulness to his covenant promise. That promise being the one he made to Abraham, that Abraham would have children and descendants and that they would be a great nation. And he's already fulfilled that through Isaac and Jacob. And then we saw through Joseph, by the time that they left Egypt under Moses' leadership, they were hundreds of thousands of people strong. They're a nation. And God said he was going to bless them materially. And we've seen that begin to take shape. In fact, when they left Egypt, they took with them a lot of Egypt's gold and wealth from people. And then... Here, we see the fulfillment of the promise that he's going to give them land. And what happens after where our reading ended last week, which was Joshua chapter 14, in chapters 15 through 21, the Israelites divide the promised land. And when we come and we read that section of scripture, it's kind of challenging and it's kind of boring. Because it says, to this tribe lists one of the 12 Israelite tribes, was given this particular chunk of land. And it lists some boundaries, like this particular stream or this tree. And it includes the cities that fell within those boundaries. And it's hard to read, and it seems repetitive. And what's boring to us would have been monumental to them. Because God's fulfilling his promise. They wandered in the desert for a long time, waiting to come into this promised land, and then they came into it, and they had to fight repeatedly against the inhabitants that lived there, and they lost members of their families, and they lost their friends, and the people that they lived with and had grown up with. And then finally, the text tells us that they had rest from war. And then they divided the land, and they got to go in and make a home out of the land that God had promised them. He's fulfilling that promise to them. In the book of Joshua, what we see is that all of God's promises will come true. They will. He's been fulfilling those throughout the book of Joshua. He's fulfilling them in 
Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and they began fulfilling them in Genesis, and he's going to continue to do so. It's particularly poignant for us as we come into Easter right now. The Old Testament is full of promises of a Messiah that would one day come who would free the Israelite people. Free them not as they were picturing in some sort of military political sense, but he was going to free them spiritually. In fact, the promised Messiah, Jesus, ends up being the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham, that he would bless all the nations through Abraham's offspring, that offspring culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament is full of those prophecies or those foretellings of what that Messiah would be like and what would happen to him. And at Easter, we see many of those come true. All of God's promises will come true. Not only is that the case, but all that God promises, He will accomplish. And He delights in using us in the midst of that process, but the work is ultimately His. Here in the book of Joshua, we've seen that the Israelites fight a lot, but the victory is ultimately the Lord's. And He reminds them of that constantly by saying, hey, you haven't even made it over to Jericho yet, but I've given it to you. You haven't made it to fight against these kings yet, but I've given you that land. I've given those kings into your hand. All that God promises, He will accomplish. And so they've conquered rather thoroughly, though not perfectly, the promised land, and they've divided it among the 12 tribes, and they send two and a half of the tribes back over to the east side of the Jordan River where their allotment of land was. And then Joshua pulls the leaders of his people together. And in chapter 23, he says this, You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It is the Lord your God who fought for you. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And you know in your hearts and souls that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. As he speaks to the leaders of the Israelite people, Joshua understands that it's important that they remember that everything God promised is coming true and that he has been the one to accomplish it. And then in chapter 24, he draws together all the people of Israel, all the tribes, all the clans, all the families, and he offers them this speech, this charge. It's arguably one of the more popular verses in the Bible. It's certainly one of the more popular in the Old Testament. It's maybe one of the most popular things that Christian people uh, hang on a wall somewhere in their house. Choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lifeway sells a ton of those. <laughs> but it's a great statement, and it's worth spending some time unpacking. And he says something before it, and so that's what I want to read first. It's Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 13. Joshua stands before the people, and this is what happens. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. 
Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued you, or pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land and destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Joshua reminds the entire assembly of Israel, from Abraham up to that current day of all that the Lord has done on their behalf. And he does so right before making that powerful statement to choose this day who they were going to serve. And it underscores what we've talked about before over the course of this year. And it's that the Israelites weren't supposed to be obedient. They weren't supposed to be faithful so that they could earn God's love and favor. They already had it. He's already done this for them. He's done all those things because he has chosen them. He's called them. He loves them. Their obedience and faithfulness to him is in response to what he's already done. The same is true for us as Christians. We don't live obedient, faithful lives in order to earn our salvation or earn God's love for us. We live obedient, faithful lives because he's already given us Jesus. We live a particular way. We live obediently to him in response to that gift. And so after saying that, Joshua goes on, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to spend the rest of our time together taking a fine-tooth comb to two sentences, two phrases that... You've certainly heard before, but are worth taking a microscope to. See, the first thing that Joshua says is choose. Here's a quick English lesson. That's a verb, right? It's an action word, but it's not an action that the Israelites were going to fulfill with their hands or with their feet. It was something that they were going to have to do in their hearts and in their minds first. He calls them to an action that begins with choice. Sometimes it's helpful to deconstruct something from the negative so that we can see the positive side of it. Well, the negative here is that when you choose something, you necessarily deselect all the other options. In choosing to worship the Lord, the Israelites were going to have to choose not to worship anything else. Here's an example. I don't know what it's like for you and your family or you and your spouse or you and your friends when you try to come up with a place to go eat. 
But for Melody and I, and this just happened last night, actually, it goes something like this. Hey, are you ready to go? Yeah. Where do you want to go? I don't really care. What sounds good to you? Uh, nothing, really. Why don't you pick? Uh, okay. Well, nothing sounds particularly good to me, so if there is something that you want, we should just go there. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything. Okay, well, can you at least give me a type of food? Yeah, let's have Mexican food. Okay, so right there, we've decided that we're not going to have cashew chicken, and we're not going to have lasagna, and we're not going to have a Big Mac, and we're not going to have a chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to overeat chips and salsa, And then we're going to order six ingredients prepared a number of different ways with beans and rice. And it's going to be delicious. But in choosing to have Mexican food, we have deselected all of the other options. And it's a necessary part of making a choice. Here's another way you can think about it. Think about the last time you took a multiple choice test. You decided that the answer was B. That means that you did not select A, C, or D. And maybe you were taking that particularly awful brand of multiple choice that offers you E, all of the above, and F, none of the above. Those options are an abomination and shouldn't exist. <laughs> when you choose something, you necessarily deselect all of the other options. And so as Joshua stands before the Israelite people and he says, choose. He's calling them to something particular. In fact, he spells it out for them. He says, put away the gods that your father served beyond the, are beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. You cannot do both, he says. When you choose one, you cannot choose the other. And for us today, that means if you choose to serve the Lord because you've seen the truth of who He is and the person of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, it means you cannot serve any other God. You can't serve Allah. You can't serve Buddha. You can't serve some imaginary version of who God is that's not who He is as He's revealed Himself in Scripture. When you choose to serve the Lord, you choose to serve the Lord as He has revealed Himself. And you deselect every other available option. Joshua says, choose. Don't worship the the gods that your fathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt. Worship the Lord. Worship Yahweh. It also means for us that we cannot choose to worship the Lord as well as worshipping power or relationships or comfort or sex or money or maybe most importantly, worshipping ourselves. Because when we choose to worship the Lord, we have deselected all of the other potential options. By choosing to follow Jesus, to worship the Lord, you choose to worship Him in response to all that He has done for you, and it means you don't worship anything else. Here's the second side to choosing. Choosing to worship the Lord requires a decisive action. A decisive moment. Think about the last time you went on a road trip. Maybe you loaded your family in the car and you were headed to St. Louis. And so uh, you got onto I-70, you started heading east. Uh, Maybe you took a quick stop in the Garden of Eden, which is Columbia, Missouri. That's not the Garden of Eden, but it's close. 
And so maybe you swung into Shakespeare's and you grabbed yourself some pizza and then you continued on towards St. Louis. And wherever your destination in St. Louis was going to be, at some point you had to make an exit off of I-70. Otherwise, you're going to roll right through St. Louis into the southern portion of Illinois. At some point, you've got to make a decisive turn. You've got to choose to get off of I-70 and go a different direction. When Joshua addresses the assembly of Israel here, he calls them to that kind of decisive moment. Choosing to follow Jesus requires the same. Choosing to follow Jesus for the first time requires a decisive moment because the default road that we're all born onto and headed down leads to an eternity apart from God because of our sin. It leads to an eternity in hell. We don't just drift our way into a right relationship with the Lord. We don't just kind of arrive at the end of our lives and find out that we did well enough to merit eternity in the presence of God. Instead, there's got to be a moment, a decisive decision, a moment of surrender, a life-changing, eternity-altering, soul-transforming moment where you go from the road that leads to an eternity apart from the presence of the Lord onto a road that's been paved by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's a decisive action there. You have to make that turn. You have to take that exit ramp. If you're here this morning, and when somebody asks you to articulate your story or your relationship with the Lord, it begins with some sort of nebulous, well, I think I've always been a Christian. I would challenge you to really consider, has there been a moment where you made a decisive act to place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? And as the pastor of this church, I would lovingly tell you that if that decisive moment has not happened in your life, it's very likely that you've not ever placed faith in Jesus Christ. There must be a decisive moment where you choose to follow Him, where you choose to place your faith in Him. Maybe you're here this morning and you say to yourself, I'm, I've done that, Tim. Well, there are plenty of other areas of life where the Holy Spirit prompts us to make a decisive step in our relationship with Him. Maybe you've been going to church for a long time, but you've not ever begun reading Scripture for yourself. Choose to open the Bible. Make a decision to do that. Maybe it's an area of surrender in your life where you know that you're wandering away from what the Lord would want for one of his children to be doing, make a choice. Take a decisive step in your relationship with the Lord. The second part of what Joshua says is choose this day. He gives them this encouragement not to delay. And the encouragement's the same for us. Don't delay in spiritual matters. There's a pastor in the 1800s named J.C. Ryle. He wrote a number of books, but he also wrote a lot of pamphlets. And one of those pamphlets was called Thoughts for Young Men. Uh, in it, he talks about the importance of young men surrendering their lives to Jesus and not delaying in doing so. And what he says, I think, is applicable well beyond, let's say, 20-year-old men. I think it applies to young men and old men and young women and old women. He says this. It's an extended quote, so bear with me. He says, It is appointed unto you once to die, and however strong and healthy you may be now, the day of your death is perhaps very near. Are you thinking you will mind these spiritual things tomorrow? 
Remember the words of Solomon. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan cares not how spiritual your intentions may be or how holy your resolutions are, if only they are fixed for tomorrow. Oh, give no place to the devil in this matter. Answer him, no, Satan, it shall be today. Are you thinking you will have a convenient season to mind these things by and by? Well, hell is paved with such, with such fantasies. Better to make sure work while you still can. Leave nothing unsettled that is eternal. Run no risk when your soul is at stake. Your time is short. Your days are but a span, a shadow, a vapor, a tale that is soon told. Your bodies are not brass. Your health may be taken from you in a moment. It needs only a fall, a fever, an inflammation, a broken vessel, and the worm would soon feed upon you. Run no risk when your soul is at stake. Do not delay in spiritual matters. If you feel like the Holy Spirit is prompting you to something, whether that be faith for the very first time or some sort of step forward in your relationship with Him, and you think to yourself, I'll get to it tomorrow, odds are you won't. I think what we typically do is we think to ourselves, I'll get really serious about following the Lord when I graduate high school or when I'm done with college and I settle down as an adult or I'll get really serious about that when I'm married or when I have kids or when we're not so busy and the kids are out of the house. Well, the reality is we'll pick the next season so long as we think there is one. What J.C. Ryle highlights is that you don't actually know that that next season exists. If you're thinking to yourself, I'll start discipling my family as soon as the kids are a little older, when our schedules aren't so busy. I'll start investing in my marriage when the kids are out of the house and it's just me and my spouse again. I'll start being obedient to the Lord and living the life that He's called me to when I'm done with college, when we've got kids to model it for. Now don't delay in spiritual matters. If you think you'll get serious tomorrow about reading your Bible or praying or chasing out the reality of that particular sin in your life, you might as well get serious about it today. That's why we offer opportunities to respond at the end of our services. That's why we've flipped around the way that we do our services so that a good chunk of our worship is following the message, so that we can allow the Holy Spirit to have some room and space to work in our hearts and in our minds and that there's time to come up and to respond to those things, to pray with one of the individuals on the side of the stage or to spend some time in prayer in your seat or whatever the case might be. So that there's room for you to choose this day to serve the Lord in the way that He's calling you to. To choose today. Choose this day who you will serve a life of worshiping the Lord is a life of service. If you want an example of that, just see the life of Jesus. When you read the Gospels, there's Jesus healing the sick, caring for the poor, investing himself in the lives of the disciples, teaching those who need to hear about God, proclaiming that the kingdom is coming and calling people to confession and repentance. There he is on his hands and knees, washing the disciples' feet. There he is hanging on the cross. I assure you that none of us are as great as Jesus, which means that our service must mirror His. If you want to worship and serve the Lord, you better be prepared to wash feet. If you want to worship and serve the Lord, you better be prepared to care for the poor, to comfort the sick, to invest your life 
and to those you're discipling, to pour yourself out for the good of those who don't know the message of the gospel, to pay attention to those who the rest of society considers unlovable. If you want to choose this day, then you better be prepared to surrender yourself to a life of service. Joshua steps up to the plate first. With the entire assembly of Israel gathered there, he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, I'm going first. Hear me say it. Me and my house, we're choosing today to serve the Lord. Paul has his New Testament proclamation of follow me as I follow Christ. Joshua has his Old Testament proclamation of me and my house are going to serve the Lord. And that kind of passionate faith is contagious. It's contagious. Here's how Israel responds. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples of the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord for He is God. That kind of passionate, humble, committed, biblical, Christ-centered, God-honoring leadership and faith is what our world in all of its sectors desperately needs to see from people who call themselves Christians. They need to see the kind of worship, the kind of faith, the kind of service that bleeds into all facets of who we are as individuals. The kind of faith that impacts how we serve those we work with or how we love those around us who are overlooked and cast aside that influences how we speak and think and interact with the world around us. That kind of life is contagious and it takes courage. It takes the kind of courage that Joshua was called to at the very beginning of this book to be strong and courageous. It comes from an understanding of God's love for us and His consistent presence with us both in the past and moving forward. What a broken and a hurting world needs to see our lives that have chosen this day to serve and worship and follow and love the Lord in a way that impacts their life tomorrow. In a way that impacts their life outside the walls of a church on Sunday morning. The world needs Christians who are committed to loving Jesus in a way that looks the exact same on Thursday afternoon during a difficult meeting or during an argument with your child on Tuesday morning as it looks on Sunday at 12.15 when we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. What the world needs to see is passionate faith from individuals who have said, I choose this day to serve the Lord. There's a tag at the end of Joshua 24. It's not a part of his speech. Instead, it's something that the author of the book of Joshua has written in. It says this in Joshua 24:31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. This generation of Israelite people caught a vision of what it looked like to serve the Lord with their lives. And when we began the book of Joshua, I said that what it records is likely the most faithful period in all of Israel's history. 
Well, that period lasted not only throughout the life of Joshua, but also throughout the lives of all of those who were standing there that day when Joshua gave this charge to the Israelite people. They gave their lives. They chose that day to worship the God who'd rescued them from Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea and led them through the wilderness and parted the Jordan River and given them Jericho when the walls fell and fought for them in the promised land and handed them the inheritance that he promised. Which meant they deselected all the other options and they made a decisive choice that day that every day forward they were going to serve the Lord. And Scripture tells us that until this group of Israelite people were dead, that's exactly what happened. They chose that day and then every day that followed to faithfully serve the Lord. And that is the challenge for us today. It's not just to profess faith for the first time, though if you're here this morning and you've not ever made that decisive choice, I cannot encourage you enough to come and talk to the individuals who will be over here as we worship here in just a moment. But it's also the challenge to wake up tomorrow, to wake up on Tuesday, and to wake up on a random Friday 20 years from now and say, Lord, I'm choosing today to serve you and to live a life that glorifies and honors you, whatever might come my way today. That those around us would see the goodness and the reality of Jesus Christ And they would have the opportunity to place their faith in him and to choose to follow him as well. We're going to spend our last 15 to 20 minutes here in worship as we always do. So team, you can come back up. There'll be uh, some people over here on the left side of the stage who would love to talk with you this morning. If you feel the spirit stirring in you, whether it's toward faith for the first time or you just want prayer for some other step forward in your relationship with the Lord, go ahead and choose today to be the time that you take that step and let us pray with you in the midst of that. Uh, I'll pray for us and then we can stand and sing together. God, thanks for this morning, for the opportunity to come and to worship. Lord, as we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. As we sing, you are worthy of it all. God, would those not just be things that tumble out of our mouths because that's what the words on the screen say, God. Would they be true statements about the reality of our heart? God, that we have chosen to follow you, that you are worthy of it all, that you deserve the glory in all things. God, would our lives be a continual picture of a choice to follow and to serve you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand up.